In the late 1960s, the Detroit rock scene was so blistering and ahead of its time that it took the rest of the country nearly three decades to finally catch up. Now, sure, plenty of Detroit rockers blew up in the 70s, but they didn't quite know how to kick out the jams with a real oh mind, if you know what I'm saying. And once folks finally got up to speed on that legacy, a little band with the same bombast, belief, and vision happened to be banging around the cast corridor waiting to channel the Motor City's greatness and its newfound attention. This is the story of that band, from the people who witnessed it firsthand. Well, except for the band. You're not going to hear from them, because they've already said their piece. From Third Man Records and Nevermind Media, this is Striped, the story of the White Stripes. Hey, I'm the man, Sandy the White Stripes from Southwest Detroit. And this ain't no last show, we're gonna rock as long as we let It's a very, it's it's kind of like a bedrock year for the band. I'm like, what's the matter? He's like, oh, I was going to ask you to join the White Stripes. And I was like, that'll never go anywhere. <laughs> did that contribute to what happened with Jack? I don't know that it did or it didn't. I'm not exactly sure the politics, but, you know, there was two strong personalities that had to happen. Because remember, at that point, it seems it seems kind of up in the air what the focus of the band is going to be. Okay, uh, so so hang on just a second. I feel like we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here, and we probably need to back up. My name's Sean Cannon. I'm a music journalist who worships at the altar of the Motor City Five, and I'll be steering this ship. But we'll also have a navigator along for the ride who owns more 45s than, I think, maybe anybody, and who's uniquely prepared for the journey ahead. My name is Ben Blackwell. I am uh, the first person to ever work for or with the White Stripes. And that's because uh, as a teenager, Blackwell ended up lugging gear into the dive bars for the band's early shows and, uh, you know, driving the van for their first tour, manning the merch booth, running their first website, and so much other stuff. Having started all that at age 15, I've become the uh, de facto White Stripes archivist. Now he's also a founder of Third Man Records alongside another Ben, Ben Swank, and the man himself, Jack White. So to really understand what was going on in the late 90s around Detroit when the White Stripes started doing their thing, I feel like you need some more context. So let's back up uh, just a second, all the way to the late 60s, when the MC5 and the Stooges were blowing everybody out of the water. During its peak years, you know, at the Grandy Ballroom on, in 68, 69, 70, it was the most exciting place to be in the whole world. Oh, and he would know. That just so happens to be the one and only brother Wayne Kramer of the MC5. And so at this point, both the MC5 and the Stooges got record deals, and it kind of looked like the rock scene in Detroit might blow up. It, 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 didn't so much, it didn't so much blow up as it just withered away. Let's not forget the fact that the MC5 was not a hit band. You know, we never pulled the golden horseshoe out of our ass. We never achieve that hit record, that TV appearance that changed everything. With fame eluding both the Stooges and the MC5 and things, uh, like Wayne said, kind of withering, they both broke up and the records went out of print, which made room for arena rockers like Ted Nugent and Bob Seger to kind of monopolize the Detroit rock legacy in the 70s. Now, the underground wasn't exactly dead, but it might have looked like it was on life support to outside observers. 
until the late 70s and early 80s, that is, when punk and hardcore exploded in the region, with acts like The Fix and Negative Approach garnering wider attention, thanks in part to the uh, now-legendary punk label Touch and Go Records, which just so happened to be based in Michigan originally. But that hardcore dominance wouldn't last. Yeah, like 82 hardcore was kind of, 83 hardcore was dead in Detroit. That's Steve Shaw, a co-founder of the 90s garage luminaries, the Detroit Cobras, who play a big part in the story. Steve is also a longtime veteran of the scene, having managed bands, shot photos, directed videos, and, and done album covers since the late 70s. So he, he kind of lived it all. And according to Steve, things started to shift again during the, uh, the early to mid-80s. And it was right about the time these uh, garage bands, who were actually, you know, in punk bands in the late 70s, guys, uh, were starting to do a lot of shows. At this point, you're talking to folks like uh, the Hysteric Narcotics, Laughing Hyenas, and even MC5 frontman Rob Tyner doing their thing. The Gories um, were audience members at some of those shows in like 84, 85. The Gories started playing around 86. You're going to hear that name a few more times here. Uh, the Gories ended up being pretty influential, and members of that band continued to be mainstays, but they broke up around 92, and that also seemed to correspond with a little bit of a lull in the music scene locally. When a few key folks left town for a while, including Steve, who went to hang out in New Orleans for a few months with fellow Detroiters Peggy O'Neill of the Gories and Rachel Nagy. When I came home, I was I had thought about maybe moving to San Francisco, um, uh, maybe moving to New Orleans, um, but I decided to come back to Detroit and start a band with my roommate at the time was uh, Mary Restrepo, who had played in a band called The Vertical Pillows during the 80s. I had done photographs for them, uh, record cover art. So I decided to come back. We started working on the Detroit Cobras. This was like in 93. Rachel was still in New Orleans. She came back in early 94. She started singing with us, uh, with the band. And in the band also on bass was Jeff Meyer, who had recorded like the last Gory's record. So there's a pretty strong continuum going here. By the time 1995 rolls around, things look like they might be on the upswing. You got the Cobras getting started, and then bands like the Henchmen, Rocket 455, the Dirt Bombs, and the Demolition Doll Rods all in full swing. And the last two bands, by the way, feature members of the Gories. And several of those bands shared members with each other at different points, too. So you might be noticing a pattern here. Lots of people in lots of bands and some real continuity. Also around this time, some venues pop up that kind of become characters all their own in the scene, including a former drag club called the Gold Dollar. We played the first show, uh, really, of any of the rock bands. I mean, I think the place, Gold Dollar, had been open maybe a, a month, maybe three weeks. And uh, we were having trouble finding places to play. Um, there was a place, uh, a bowling alley, the which became the Magic Stick. They weren't really interested in booking any of them local garage bands uh, so much. They certainly weren't interested in booking the Detroit Cobras. And I was friends with the guy. We started, like I say, we started playing at the Gold Dollar and uh, our first show was September 1st, 96. We played another show in October. That place was filling up to the point where the bigger place around the corner, the Magic Stick, all of a sudden now they do want us to play there. 
I'm saying the the scene was pretty well established, and that was really an extension of things that had been going on in the early '90s and through the '80s, as as that was an extension of what had been going on in the late '70s. So there's a pretty strong continuum going here. And even though most of the folks at this point weren't direct participants in the late '60s scene, that was still a big part of this lineage and and a big motivator with everybody who followed kind of measuring themselves against guys like the MC5, who Steve and and so many other folks that I talked to desperately wanted to measure up to. But, well... The bar was so fucking high. And we all knew that. (laughs) But um, it didn't stop us from trying. And we hoped that we could be part of that continuum. And, you know, that continuum he's talking about expands far beyond just the rock scene with a big history of cross-pollination in Detroit, as Blackwell says here. Well, I mean, if you listen to bands like the MC5, they're definitely, you know, they're covering John Lee Hooker. They're taking inspiration from from that. Um, bands like the Gories, uh, same thing. They're covering John Lee Hooker. Um uh, I, I mean, I guess it's worth saying Detroit has a solid blues history with John Lee Hooker, with um, the JVB record label, with um, the Black Bottom neighborhood, which had places like um, Henry's Swing Club and the 20 Grand Club, Flame Show Bar, things like that. Um, Mo- the, the, the worst part about Motown as, as a label, as a, as a proper noun, is that it kind of ended up overshadowing all of the other equally as impressive and important African-American musical forms that were represented in the city. So that's all there. That's all percolating. That's, that's in the DNA. And another overlooked part of that DNA was just exactly how the auto industry affected music in Detroit, and maybe not in ways that you'd think. All of those guys worked in car factories. It's like, you know, the, like you work in the car factory and then you go do your thing on the weekend. You can, um, those jobs paid well enough where a lot of those guys just ended up self-releasing their own records. Now bear in mind that today, putting out a record's really easy. You record it in your bedroom, you upload it to SoundCloud, it's done. But back then, I mean, it was an ordeal. You know, everything was tracked on tape, then mixed, mastered, pressed, and you had to pay people for every single step. The effect of middle-class affluence didn't just apply to the auto workers themselves like Blackwell was talking about there. It affected the whole family, and it helped spur the rock scene in the 50s and 60s. It was no big deal to let your teenage son and his three friends take over the garage, and you can go buy them decent Fender guitars and Ludwig drums, and they can start a band in the garage. Um, it's it's, It's the entirety of the family. But what post-war America and, and the auto industry afforded to the residents of Detroit was a level of being able to explore your leisure that was probably not seen before or since. Before or since. And that since part, that's important. Because eventually the auto industry started fading in the city. 
and continued white flight only exacerbated that problem. So by the time the 90s rolled around, the city was in tatters, which might sound familiar, but it was well beyond most other urban cores in the country at the time. My Soledad Brothers frontman Johnny Walker was from Toledo, Ohio, which is just outside Detroit, and he made frequent trips up I-75 to the city. And he vividly remembers the state of Detroit. Uh, something akin to the Wild West. Oh, totally like the Wild West. You could do anything in Detroit you wanted to at that time. You could, like, drive the wrong way down a one-way street. If a cop saw you, he probably wouldn't even, he wouldn't even fuck with you. Um, you could do basically anything you wanted. There was empty buildings everywhere. And you could go and break into the empty building and hang out. You know, you could, there was a, the book building downtown, which was a big skyscraper. You could go all the way up to the top floor. It was completely empty all the way up and hang out. Another example of, of just how wild things could be was life at the old Miami, a sort of uh, unofficial VFW bar that also hosted punk shows. During the 80s and 90s, they would have someone stationed on the roof to uh, watch the parking lot with a, with a shotgun. That, that was their security. Now, the old Miami, like the Magic Stick and the Gold Dollar and other staples of the scene, all happened to be in the same neighborhood, the Cass Corridor. The Cass Corridor was the most notorious dope neighborhood in the country. It was, it was insane. Uh, my friends lived about three doors down from there, and um, they bought an old a building. It was probably 10,000 square feet, completely empty, except for the seven Rottweilers that lived there to keep people out of the building. So people would just buy dogs and leave them in the buildings to, to keep the people from, you know, breaking into the buildings there. And uh, people would try to break into his building all the time when he was home. He had to chase people out all the time. So it was... I guess saying it was like the Wild West is pretty accurate. As you can imagine, uh, being in a city that the rest of the country seems to have completely abandoned, where the once assumed idea of supporting yourself while being a musician was totally out of reach, uh, well, it, it had an effect on bands in Detroit in a lot of different ways, one of which Ben Blackwell is pretty certain of. What I think it gets to is the people that are doing it those people have to be really motivated. It's not easily accomplished. It has to be something you desire. You can't just half-ass it and expect to, to do anything that way. You know, you have to have the motivation to be a band at that point. It's not easily accomplished. It's not, um, it's not in the back. You know, it's like you got to work. People aren't, you know, people probably aren't going to really care so much. So you really have to do it. You really have to work hard. Whittling down the scene to people who are serious and committed also meant there were high expectations in the city. But a real sense of community among participants, too, which Johnny Walker experienced uh, on both fronts firsthand. Bands would come, touring bands would come from the around the country, and it was like, well, you're in Detroit now. And, you know, the clone defects are opening up for you, so you, you better be on your A game. Because people would just leave and go smoke on the sidewalk and the bar would empty out if they didn't like your band. But at the same time, if your amp broke down, someone would drive, you know, home and get an amp and bring it in for you to use. Which had happened, had happened a few times to me and I was just like, 
this is pretty sweet. You know, like these people are all down for the cause. Everybody would help everybody and borrow each other's gear and, you know, borrow each other's car. That's Patrick Pantano, one of the other folks who happened to leave Detroit for a while and then come back to a scene that felt stronger. And he went on to play in the Dirt Bombs and the Come Ons. The shows I would play and the bands I would play with earlier on, like in the early 90s, just wasn't, didn't have the same vibe. So it was just a lot of helping each other out because it was just kind of this community of people. Everyone's in a band and everyone's kind of excited to see each other's bands. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a very huge scene of uh, players. Dave Buick, uh, the founder of Detroit label Italy Records, remembers it pretty much the same way. A tight-knit group of enthusiastic people who were passionate about playing shows and watching shows with each other. Everyone that was, you know, playing, you know, all the musicians and, you know, people like me who weren't really musicians, you know, we were all very enthusiastic and uh, ready to go. So there was a lot of, you know, a lot of cross, you know, members that, you know, were in multiple bands. There was a lot of one-off shows like Brown Cardboard with me and Jack and Blackwell. We did a show. There's the Johnny Walker All-Stars. Yeah, so there's just a lot of people, a lot of people excited about, music and live music and playing it and seeing it so that you know there was there wasn't really a lot of competition just kind of a lot of people it was just kind of like one giant team so you corral people who want to do something good who like johnny said are down for the cause and in most cities that might inspire folks to to kind of try to you know make it but when i asked patrick pantano about expectations of success like he shot that down pretty quickly I mean, there wasn't any expectations as far as, well, what would you call it, stardom. You know, you just kind of kept plugging away and you made the music. I really don't know that anybody really thought that far forward or anybody was thinking in terms of like the music industry as a thing, like anything that you would ever even participate in. Like nobody was gearing towards that. Local photographer and longtime scenester Doug Coombe agreed when when thinking about the the juxtaposition of having so much going on and then absolutely no access to traditional music industry levers to pull. Detroit, on one hand, felt dead in terms of it being a launching pad for a music career, but it didn't feel dead at all. It was, that, you know, in terms of amazing talent that was coming from here because it wasn't an industry town. Detroit felt like this amazing music city that the rest of the U.S. didn't care about. And according to Blackwell, even when bands in the scene did make it out of the city, it was cool, but it wasn't representative of, of, of some huge success others might aspire to. The Gories in 1992, they toured Europe, which I think for everyone in Detroit was probably a huge mindfuck. Like, how in the hell is this? Been? The Gories were, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but supposedly were voted worst band in Detroit twice. So the fact that there's a... German garage label called Crypt that had basically promised them plane tickets for an album. Um, and they had done a month long or two month long tour in Europe in summer of 92. To me that even, even looking back on that, knowing what Detroit was like, knowing what that scene was like, it still seems absolutely bonkers that they toured Europe. Um, but then after that, Dan from the Gories starts the demolition doll rods and they get renowned and they start being able to go to Europe. Um, there's, two guys from East Lansing and a band called Bantam Rooster and they get signed to Crypt as well maybe about 96 or so and they're able to go and tour Europe and so I think slowly but surely it was like these select groups were able to have patronage 
to get them over and do these fun and probably probably not lucrative, but probably also not costing the band money. They're probably breaking even doing these trips. That's great and fun and awesome, but everyone's still going home to a day job. You know, you got to work at the record store uh, the day after tour's over, you know, that kind of thing. Detroit might not have been uh, the next Seattle or whatever the music industry was looking for then, but th- th- there was something in the air. That was clear enough. I mean, just ask indie rocker Brendan Benson, who's from Detroit and, and left years before to-, to find a record deal. Before I left, it was sorely lacking. I mean, in my opinion, there was, I don't know. It, I mean, there was a little bit for everybody, but nothing, nothing I don't think very extraordinary. In other words, I wasn't. I was wanting to get out. If I thought, if I, if I, if I thought I was going to kind of make it, I thought I needed to leave. Eventually, Brendan got a record deal with Virgin, uh, put out an album, and found himself living in the Bay Area, where it also kind of seemed like nothing was happening. So he considered another move. Uh, he talked to his girlfriend. They sort of discussed moving back home, but uh, he was on the fence, and that's that's putting it politely. I thought I felt like going back to Detroit would be, you know, going back to kind of really nothing, you know, you know what I mean? If there was, if there wasn't much to choose from in, in San Francisco, then there really wasn't going to be much in Detroit. And so on a visit home, I think it was on a visit home, I, I caught a show or I I saw, I saw the White Stripes play and I was floored. I couldn't believe it. And that was like, I was like, all right, I'm sold. I'm, I'm, and, and also I noticed there was this, this scene, you know, this, I mean, my friends had kind of become involved in this garage rock scene. So I was like, cool, this is, this is, feels good. Just feels like there's something going on here, a movement or something exciting, you know? So I was, after seeing the White Stripes, I was, I made my choice to move home. hey, it's really easy to think this is all just people reminiscing about the past, wearing those, you know, fancy rose-colored glasses. But in doing research for this, I found a photo from that era taken by Doug Coombe, who who you heard from earlier. It's of a show where there's a bunch of movers and shakers from the scene, and they're all in the front row. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not something I would actually expect to see normally in most cities. If you're in a band... If you're an important person in the scene, you hang out in the back of the venue with your arms folded like you're, you know, too cool for school. I mean, I've done that. <laughs> but in this photo, everyone was was right there supporting each other. In fact, Brendan was one of the people front and center. That reminds me of DC hardcore. Like that's I was into that when I was a kid, like DC punk and hardcore. I loved it. And I was obsessed and I looked at all the read all the fanzines and all looked at all the looked at the pictures and and I saw all the other bands in the audience, you know, I mean, famously, I think, you know, there's like famous photo of Minor Threat playing and like HR from the Bad Brains is in there in the audience, you know, stage diving or something. And I just thought that was so cool. So that, it kind of reminds me of that. That's the other time you'd see that. I mean, that's the other time I've seen that. Comparing things to the DC hardcore scene in the 80s is lofty because that that's the pinnacle of community in the minds of most punk and indie rock fans. 
but it really does seem apt. So, so okay, uh, you have this vibrant scene, people playing in multiple bands, lots of camaraderie, killer music, and seemingly no one outside of Detroit paying attention. Or so it might seem, because that was changing. Remember Steve Shaw and his band, the Detroit Cobras, from the beginning of the episode? Well, it turns out he was really pushing the Cobra's first three singles, which all came out in 96. I had a job where I'd be in New York like uh, every third week of the month. So I was bringing the singles. I was stocking record stores and jukeboxes in New York City with the Detroit Cobra's uh, singles. I was sending them out to uh, zines all over the world to get reviewed. The response coming back was just was pretty fantastic. And I knew that there was already... An audience. The audience he's talking about was cultivated a few years earlier by the Gorys, who, like Blackwell said, made it out of the city a little. So Steve was admittedly trying to piggyback off the Gorys' small success, and it actually works at this point. People start to notice. But the big difference is that his band, the Detroit Cobras, make it clear, hey, this is where we're coming from. Check the city out. That was the whole point of the name of the band. It was supposed to be like the Detroit Wheels. It was supposed to be like the MC5. That's why we called ourselves that. And I, I had faith that, you know, just because I come from a sort of a record collector kind of background, just older brother, was a huge record collector. I knew that mentality. I'd been going to New York with the Gorys like in the 80s and the 90s. And I knew what the response was. And I knew why people, people loved the idea of something coming out of Detroit. Steve reasoned, and I think rightfully so, that this interest in the city came at least in part from a renewed interest in those old Stooges and MC5 albums, at least among bands that eventually developed uh, years and years down the line, which really squares with how Wayne Kramer sees the MC5's legacy, too. Musicians always gave the five their props. Um, But, you know, in general, uh, we were kind of off the radar for a 10 years there, I guess. A lot of people didn't really catch up to those records till the late 70s. And, and you know, I, I think it's safe to say Stooges records and MC5 records probably sold a lot more after they split up. I remember when those records were reissued. So all of a sudden they were available uh, as imports in all cool record stores. You know, previous to, the, to that, they were completely out of print. So I think a lot of people in the 80s were buying those Stooges and the MC5 albums. And those people included pretty much every band that blew up in the early 90s, from Nirvana to Green Day to the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And all those brand new rock stars paid homage to the late 60s Motor City scene. Hell, Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth released a comp from the even more obscure Detroit art rock band Destroy All Monsters in 94. So in other words... You're right. The rest of the world, the rest of the world took some time catching up, like 30 or 40 years. (laughs) And I think the catching up factor um, always fed the interest in uh, what was going on in Detroit in terms of rock and roll. Now you have the Cobras shouting Detroit from the top of their lungs, I mean, somewhat literally, and you have larger audiences finally realizing how ahead of its time the city was. Now, the city wasn't quite in the center of the zeitgeist, as you could tell, but people were taking notice, including the eccentric Long Gone John, who ran the indie label Sympathy for the Record Industry. Now, in 1997, the Cobras played a show with a band that had done some records with Sympathy, the Bass Holes. And their front man was a guy named Don Howland. Well, somebody walked up to me. I thought I'd 
think Don Holland had spoken to uh, the guy who ran Sympathy about us. Um, there was an incident uh, in 97 where uh, Rachel, where we pulled, the Cobras played with Kim Fowley. By the way, Fowley was what you might call an infamous and well-connected figure in the underground music scene who lived in L.A. just like Long Gone John from Sympathy. And Rachel tackled Kim Fowley while he was on stage. And Kim Fowley turned it into this big drama, went back to L.A. and said that the Detroit Cobras were, were a, you know, sort of a street gang. And, uh, and they triggered some gang war against him on stage. Of course, all this didn't hurt us at all in terms of, uh, you know, getting on the label. Like by, by the time I started talking to Sympathy about us maybe putting out a record on the label, um, you know, he had heard about us from Kim Folly, he'd heard about us. So uh, that did, you know, I'm just saying that it kind of uh, helped get the ball rolling. It doesn't take long for the Cobras to strike a deal with Sympathy and then put out their debut LP, uh, Mink, Rat, or Rabbit, which happens in early 1998. Yeah, that record was kind of a hot record. It sold a lot of copies. I think it blew through its first pressing in about two months. They were already repressing it, um, uh, you know, like around April of 98. And I think it's around that time that I spoke to John. In the past, uh, Sympathy for the Record Industry spent time exploring individual music scenes like Memphis, uh, putting out samplers and plenty of singles and LPs from a bunch of Memphis acts. And it seemed like the success of the Cobras had long gone John looking a little further north for his next honeypot. And he was talking about maybe he could, maybe doing something like that in Detroit. He uh, wanted to know what bands he should record in Detroit, and I told him to put an album Now, you know what? I think we're getting ahead of ourselves again, so... You'll have to wait until later to find out exactly what Steve Shaw told Long Gone John, because that's all we've got for this episode of Striped, the story of the White Stripes. I want to say a special thanks to Ben Blackwell, Ben Swank, and the rest of the Third Man crew. We get production assistance from Mark Charles, Kojin Tashiro, and Melissa Locker. And additional scoring in this episode is by Lone Wolf Gang. You know, the biggest thanks of all, though, goes to Jack and Meg White, the White Stripes, because without them... None of this would be possible. I'm your host and producer, Sean Cannon. I'll see you next time. When I think of 98 and 99, like, you know, I just think of piling in Jack's unair conditioned bright yellow van and, you know, just going around and doing stuff re- relating to Italy records. And uh, I remember being shivering in his car and coming up with like, you know, when we made, when we did the hand painted sleeves, like we were just, we were panicking because we didn't have covers for the record release show and then I just remember driving around and we're like well let's just paint our own and we stopped at you know stopped at the art supply store and got the stuff and did it I just I don't know I have like for some reason you know the yellow van always uh, a lot of a lot of ideas and a lot of laughs and a lot of uh, a lot of time were spent in the yellow van for some reason 
I have the yellow van pops to my mind all the time and, and the lack of air conditioning. And I, I definitely didn't have the dream of, you know, 20 years later, you know, working for a record label and, uh, working for a good friend and, you know, working on projects that are very similar to the ones we, you know, bonded over, you know, two decades ago. I definitely didn't see that happening. So whatever my dreams were, I've, you know, they were, I, I blew past those, you know, years ago. 